Hi, it's Thomas. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know that you can support the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash thomasdaam. And if that's not in the works for you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find out about the show. And now, without any further ado, here's the show. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Neomare Show. My name is Thomas Daam. It's March 22nd and I'm in Eindhoven today and my guest is Claire L. Evans. Claire is a writer and artist based in Los Angeles. She is also a member of the cyber feminist collective Deep Lab uh, and her first book Broadband, the untold story of women who made the internet and it's just published. And I'm very happy to welcome Claire to the Neomare Show. Thank you for having me. Let's go back almost two years ago when we were also in Eindhoven. Mm-hmm. Um, I attended your um, science fiction uh, workshop and um, you also gave a lecture there at uh, the Stripe Festival called uh, The Sound of Post-Human Music. And um, it was one of the best uh, presentations that I saw that year. Oh, thank you. In this lecture you said science fiction is a critical lens to understanding the world. Can you explain why? <laughs> Okay, yes. Well, I mean, I see science fiction as, well, it's very difficult to define what science fiction is. I sometimes begin workshops by asking people to define science fiction, and often people have a very hard time doing it. But the way I understand it, science fiction is the craft of imagining uh, radical discontinuities between our world and a second imaginary world. Mm -hmm. And the practice of reading and writing science fiction is often the practice of identifying the differences between our world and this sort of variable or very varied world and uh, understanding sort of by subtraction what it is in our world that we take for granted, if that makes sense. Um, it's sort of this mechanic by which we can come to understand the world as it is around us. And sometimes it helps us to see things which are so close to us that we can't perceive them clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, when we make deviations in the timeline or we make deviations in the social structure of a world um, and build a narrative around that, it really helps us to wrap our minds around what's real and what's not and what's important and the consequences of our actions. So I just find it in general to be a really interesting critical tool and something that I often turn to and lean on when I'm making any kind of creative work, whether if it's fiction or nonfiction. What you did in the presentation is mm-hmm. you showed people playing music, but it looked, but it sounded like, uh, for example, like the Beatles, or yeah. like you were in a science fiction setting, and then they played music that was like popular in this in this particular era. Yes, it's. I mean, it's a thing. Often, I think in science fiction, film and TV, especially where. Um, there's a lack of imagination when it comes to music and when it comes to art, like the depiction of art of the future or music of the future Mm -hmm. is often much more representative of the time that we're in than it is about any imagination of the future. Because if we try to imagine what the music of the future will look like or sound like, um, you know, it's sort of by definition impossible to imagine. Mm -hmm. If you had played, you know, Gabber music for Beethoven, his head would have exploded. But that's just the nature of the evolution of art, right? right? So um, I always think it's really interesting to look at music and science fiction and to try to imagine a little bit more realistically what that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's beyond our capacity to really wrap our heads around, but it's an interesting exercise, certainly. Yeah. And yes, it's true. If you look at like you know the music from you know the Matrix or from Star Trek episodes, it's always you know, really, really rooted in the moment that it's created. We try to look for things that are familiar. And I think sometimes the role of science fiction is to change something really fundamental, um, but maybe that doesn't necessarily mean the art and music Mm -hmm. either. I mean, there are other things happening in The Matrix or in these episodes of Star Trek that I cited in my talk um, that are not related to the arts and culture of the future, Mm -hmm. uh, but which are much more sort of, um, you know, critical in another way. Going a bit fast forward, because <laughs> I just heard um, downstairs where we were talking um, that you worked almost two years on the your book. Yes. And I was wondering what triggered you to write this book? Mm, I don't really have like a clean answer to that, which mm. I should because people have been asking me for two years. Oh. But I think, you know, for me, I felt like this book needed to exist. There right. needed to be a kind of popular history of women mm-hmm. in computing. There certainly have been books before mine. The very great mm-hmm. Sadie Plant wrote a book called Zeros and Ones in the 1990s, which is sort of much more academic and and critical than mine is. And there have been no shortage of histories of technology. And I've read, I think, all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But those books do not include women at all. Mm -hmm. Or if they do, it's like sort of in a tokenist kind of way or in passing or as footnotes. And, um, you know, in reading those books, I 
had the intuition, I think probably because of my 34 years of lived experience as a human woman in this world, that there was probably a great deal more to those stories that we weren't hearing. And mm-hmm. so I started to investigate it out of pure curiosity. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, discovered that there was, you know, not just a few interesting stories, but a wealth of material, a huge wealth of material. Yeah. Um, and that those stories that I was coming across were just as interesting and as compelling and as instructive as like the prevailing myths that we mm-hmm. hear again and again about you know, men in garages starting companies in Palo Alto. So, you know, I think there was sort of a perfect storm moment where I realized that I wanted this book to exist and I saw the material was there and I realized that, you know, I had a unique opportunity to make it happen. And so Mm -hmm. I did. Um, I didn't read it. I listened to the book. That's Um, reading. That counts. Yeah, that's also. Yeah, exactly. I really enjoyed listening to you. The way you wrote the book Mm is really contemporary with a lot of things to the present day. Um, you also write that um, a lot of um, people have always this symbiotic relation um, with the with the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, can you tell about what's your relation um, with the in- with the internet um, growing up? Interesting. Um, yes. Well, to address your earlier point, I think it's really important to always contextualize history in the right. present day. I mean, a lot of these stories have very explicit. Um, lessons and uh, implications mm-hmm. on our present day. And also, I think for a younger audience or a contemporary audience that maybe didn't grow up with the same World Wide Web experiences mm-hmm. that I had, um, it's good to remind them, oh, you know, this is like this. And these are the, these are the analogies so that yeah. we can understand, um, you know, so that everybody can understand the history. I wanted the story to be as accessible as possible for mm-hmm. as many people as possible, because otherwise it doesn't really serve any purpose. Um, history is here to teach us, and if we don't get it, then mm-hmm. what's the point? Um, in terms of my own experiences growing up, I mean, I I could only really anchor these stories in my understanding of what the internet is. And my understanding of what the internet is has really changed. And that's part of the reason I wanted to write the book as well. Um, is because, you know, I, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, I always felt extremely certain that the web was like my domain or was the mm-hmm. domain of my generation, mm-hmm. um, was a place where I felt to be, you know, native and natural and, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous, I felt... Um, like it was my space and so to speak uh, but it wasn't until you know a couple of years ago I started to realize that I didn't feel that way anymore that that the internet had become this kind of hostile environment um, consequence of a lot of factors of course probably primarily capitalism mm-hmm. more than anything else but um, I didn't really know when that change happened like I couldn't perceive exactly when that change happened mm-hmm. between the World Wide Web was a place of exploration and creativity and community and joy and, you know, strangeness and oddity and subculture to the World Wide Web as this kind of oppressive, you know, technocratic corporate environment. And I think part of my desire for writing the book was to sort of try to identify what the timeline was and, and when those changes started happening mm-hmm. and what factors influence the development of the modern Internet, which is, you know, very different from the original goals mm. and aspirations of the early internet. Right. I don't really know the answer to that question still. Mm. I mean, I think it's really the commercialization of the World Wide Web that led to where we are today. Mm. But, you know, there are still always pockets of things which are really interesting. There are still always people using the web in interesting ways. I'm not completely sort of doom and gloom and dystopian about the implications of our modern environment. I think we do the best we can with what mm-hmm. we have but we have certainly a lot less resources for you know, freedom and creativity mm-hmm. as we maybe did when I was young. So maybe that's the, because of the VC money that it changed? I think it's, you know, okay, here's a story I sometimes tell. Like, in the very beginning of the World Wide Web, nobody knew how they were going to make money mm-hmm. on it. Like, that wasn't really a concern necessarily, yeah. but there was this sort of feeling that it was going to be really important and that probably money would be made, and people made a lot of early attempts to figure out what that meant. Um, the first online magazines to be published... I mean, they thought that they would become extremely wealthy because physical magazines, print magazines, you sell subscriptions, but you have to print the magazines and warehouse them and ship them, and that costs money. But web magazines, you know, the supply is infinite. Mm -hmm. So if you can sell subscriptions to web magazines, then you can make infinite money in principle. Of course, that's not at all how it ended up working, as we all know. Um, So then the strategy shifted to selling ads, and the selling of ads began to dictate the shape of the content that we started to see on the web. Mm -hmm. It began to change sort of the tone and nature of conversation on the web. Uh, It began to make the web look a lot more like print media as we understood it in the past. Now, we still sell ads on the web, but that's certainly not really the way that most people make money anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, we're sort of in this much more kind of 
strange and um, opaque and complex form of money making, which is like essentially selling, you know, user demographics and mm -hmm. user data mm -hmm. to companies and to other users in this yeah. sort of complicated, you know, mutual surveillance, uh, <laughs> you know, operation that yeah. we, is what we call modern day social media. Um, that is just the consequence of people trying to figure out how to make money with this new technology. And in doing so, they've kind of disenfranchised um, the original goals of the web from themselves, and they've turned the users into the product, mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm not the first person to say that for certain. But um, yes, that's sort of the, the evolution as I see it. Uh, the problem is, I think, you know, when we see banner ads on a website, it's very clear what's going on. But with the sort of modern day model, it's almost impossible to fully understand what we are giving up in exchange mm -hmm. for the services that we yeah. think we're receiving for free. There is no transparency about it. It's actually been interesting for me to be in Europe. I haven't been in Europe since GBDR happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being able to actually like opt out of things makes you realize, I mean, it's made me realize how incredibly pervasive mm -hmm. all of this is and how hidden it is from view. Yeah. Um, it's been really instructive. Yeah, it's, it's getting more complicated now with the opt-in opt and opt-out. Yeah, but it's cool. I mean, you have to, if you just, if you have the patience to dig through a little bit, you can reject all yeah. the purposes and you can say that you opt out of things. Yeah. And, you know, sure, it's like pretty user hostile in terms mm -hmm. of you have to like really find all that mm -hmm. stuff and poke out of it, but at least it's there, yeah. you know, in the US it's, everything is hidden from view. Right. And it is like deliberately impossible to figure out yeah. exactly what's going on and what you're giving up and what yeah. is, what is being taken from you. Can you tell um, how important women are um, for computation, uh, as we know now? Or yeah, of course. I mean, they're f the word computer. You know, for mm -hmm. two hundred years, didn't refer to an object; it referred to right. a, a job, and that job was usually done by women. Um, it was not perceived as being a very important job for a very long time because um, you know human computation before the invention of the mechanical computer usually meant. Uh, rooms full of people doing complicated math problems that were broken down into little pieces so that each individual would only do kind of brute, you know, sort of busy work. Mm -hmm. And then the collective together, sort of networked together, would be mm -hmm. doing these kind of grander projects as a group. It was really important to the development of the scientific age and the beginning of the technological era as we understand it mm -hmm. today. Um, it was an incredibly feminized job. And by the time that mechanical computers were invented during World War II, you know, scientists would refer to the units of machine labor that it would take for a computer to process problems in terms of kilo girls mm -hmm. or, kilo, you know, girl years. So it was tied to, fundamentally tied to sort of human female bodies and minds. And of course, when the first mechanical computers were invented, the first people who were hired to operate those machines were the women mm -hmm. that had been doing the same work by hand for, at that point, you know, close to 200 yeah. years. And so... Again, not considered to be a very important job. It was seen as being on the level with being a telephone operator or secretary or, mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, this kind of menial manipulation of the important thing, which was the hardware. Of course, you know, the menial manipulation of hardware in order to make a piece of hardware process complicated mm -hmm. differential calculus equations is certainly not an easy task. Mm -hmm. And the first people who were tasked to do it um, came up with strategies for, you know, workflow and processing and documentation that are still very much in part of the work of coding and programming today. And um, during and after the war, they developed strategies for kind of elevating the craft of programming beyond the sort of base, you know, machine level mm -hmm. uh, to a more sort of symbolic and systems oriented level, which led to the development of uh, programming languages and compilers and assemblers and generators and all these kind of building blocks, fundamental building blocks in the evolution of computer science. So that was all done by women, uh, really fundamentally, and women were a huge part of the computer science industry, mm -hmm. or just the computing industry for you know a first, the first couple of decades. It wasn't really until the 1980s, in the US at least, mm -hmm. that we started to see women disappearing from tech. Um, so I think kind of the boys club dominance of Silicon Valley is really you know a historical anachronism, mm -hmm. and this sort of ridiculous logic of some you know programmers who believe that women are somehow not suited to the job of working with computers is, mm. you know, something that is completely not rooted in any kind of truth or historical mm -hmm. record. Yeah. Um, women have always been really quite good yeah. uh, at this specific kind of craft and in fact invented it. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's more like the boys take over or was it like something else? The boys take over. In fact, there's a really great book written by a historian, Nathan Ensmenger, 
about this called the computer boys takeover. So it is very much that. I mean, it's all the same stuff. I mean, I, when I give talks about this, like, you know, no woman that I ever present this material to is surprised by this. I mean, because programming was not seen as being important for a very long time, mm. it was a job that was given to women because it wasn't an important job and the women could do it. Um, it wasn't really until the women refined what the craft of programming meant and made it important, made mm. it into something with its own value, mm. um, its own sort of commercial capitalistic value, but mm. also its own sort of symbolic and uh, practical value, that we start to see men entering the field, deciding that the field of programming was worthy enough for um, their contributions as well. And then with that comes all of the sort of structural inequality that we see in the workplace mm -hmm. uh, in the West, you know, at least, um, you know, wage disparity and lack of access to resources and childcare, mm -hmm. lack of mentorship, mm -hmm. um, a sort of change, gradual change that happened in the late 60s and 1970s about, um, you know, professional credentials and educational requirements necessary to get a job as a programmer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to be that programmers, and we're getting back to this now, but it used to be that programmers were kind of self-taught weirdos who were just good at math, who found their way yeah. into programming because they either were sort of enlisted to do mm -hmm. that kind of job during the war, mm -hmm. or they you know, were good at puzzles and they answered mm -hmm. an ad and it turned out that they were good at the job. Uh, and they were known as being coders or operators mm -hmm. or programmers. And then it wasn't really until the late 60s that we start to see the term software engineer. Mm -hmm. And that is a very different kind of connotation to it. It, yeah. it implies the association with you know professional organizations and qualifications and a whole world, uh, which women historically have not really been given a lot of access to. So the rise of the software engineer is, you know, I think, um, kind of coeval with the decline of women mm -hmm. In the computing industry, and, and do you see that, that that there is now a change because it's now so accessible for for everybody? Yeah, I mean, I think there certainly are more ways in now than there mm -hmm. used to be, for sure. But it's still a very male-dominated environment. I think not so much, well, for lots of reasons. Um, but I think the primary culprit at this point now is this kind of like popular conception and mm -hmm. marketing. Mm -hmm. It's an entire generation of people, men primarily, who grew up thinking that computers were for them and for them alone mm -hmm. because of advertisements and television and movies and games that were mm -hmm. targeted explicitly to them and their peers when they were kids. That mm -hmm. kind of stuff sticks in our brains and makes us believe certain things to be true. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at a lot of the imagery around the sales of computing equipment and computing software, you know, from basically like the late 60s to today, mm -hmm. it's a lot of boys gathered around machines playing games and sexy women modeling you know, consoles, it's it's the kind of stuff that really has an impact. And I think for a generation of people, it's made them feel entitled to a certain kind of primacy in that space. Mm -hmm. And it's made another gen generation of women at least feel not entitled to that space. And it's as simple as that sometimes, mm -hmm. um, just a kind of cultural conception. So I think, you know, we're starting to understand the consequences of what that has done to our society. I mean, when technological products and technologies are designed by a monoculture, then it very often turns out that when they are released into the world, they cause more damage than good because mm -hmm. um, thought has not been put into how this technology is going to actually affect society. Is it going to actually affect the user? I think the best example of that is probably harassment, moderation, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook were not built by people who worry about things like being harassed or being mm -hmm. stalked or being doxxed. Mm -hmm. um, those concerns kind of came later, a little bit too late, um, when it was sort of too late to make any substantive changes to the yeah. structure of the ecosystem. And so now we deal with that, the consequences of that. You know, people, many people have been hurt fundamentally by that. Um, so I think getting to a point now where we're sort of we're reckoning with the consequences and because of that we are coming to understand how important it is to mm -hmm. make sure that there's a lot of diversity um, on all sides but it's going to take a long time i think it took a generation to create this condition that we are in now and it will probably take another generation to undo it which is why i think it's so important to start young with kids and right. to make sure that they understand that you know, there are many points of entry and many points of access into mm -hmm. technology that they don't need to be hard-nosed, mm -hmm. you know, engineer coders. They can be, you know, enfranchised members of a technological world in many different ways uh, and that they are all valid and that they are all welcome. It's, you know, obviously a very complex mm -hmm. thing to do, but I see it happening all around us and I, I have a lot of hope for the future because of the youth. You know, if the planet doesn't explode yeah. before they can fix things, hopefully we'll be okay. Okay, so now I have a, I have a question because <laughs> we just had a baby girl. Yeah, okay. We'll take, a, I think, hopefully six months before she understands like my mobile phone. <laughs> but how, 
how can I protect her or maybe make her wise in a way so that she's aware of this? Or oh God. I mean, it? it's hard. I think on some level it's like it's difficult to teach basic technological literacy to the next generation too because they're going to have a completely different experience of things and they're going to interpret and use things completely differently than our generation right. does. I, you, know, like you don't want to instill your kids with the same values as yours because they might not be useful mm-hmm. in the future world. But I think, you know, it's... It's all the stuff I hope you would already do as a parent, which is just to encourage right. her interests. If she doesn't want to be a coder, you can't force her to do it. But if she does want to be a coder, you better you better help her, you mm-hmm. know, and that's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> but I also think, like, I mean, I really think it's important. And one of the things that was important for me in the book was the book is not all about, like, technical women. It's not yeah. all about engineers and software engineers and coders. It's also about artists and community right. organizers yeah. and community developers and and hackers and game developers. I mean, mm-hmm. there are many different ways to make an impact. Yeah. You don't have to be like really technically. That's also what I mean. Like if she can start like just I did, I started new more yeah. because I wanted. Yeah. I'm sure I will like motivate her for everything, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about it. So mm. Well, you know, I think it's always about modeling good behavior with kids right. too, you know, like I, a lot of my friends who have kids, it's like they're trying to keep the phone or the iPad away from them as much as possible because they want to give their kids' brains the chance to <laughs> to develop yeah. without like immediately like hacking into this like right. you know drug like ecosystem of satisfaction and reward. Uh, so I would advise that probably as much mm-hmm. as possible. You want your kid to have critical thinking mm-hmm. skills and you know uh, be able to interact with the world without the sort of weird right. things that are happening inside the screen. Yeah. But you also want her to make the best of things and to and to be able to build things right. and participate. So I think it's this moderation, right? Yeah. Everything in moderation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You describe well women in the book. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think there's like More or less. a dozen-ish like yeah. major characters. Right. But I interviewed, you know, yeah, and then you people. interviewed them, um, the ones who were still alive. You mm-hmm. interviewed them all, and then how was that experience? Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, there's not a single person. I sent hundreds of emails in the process of writing this book, obviously. And I think I'm pretty good at sending like a cold email, you know, an email yeah. out of the blue, like explaining what I want from somebody. Uh, but even with that, I mean, there's not a single person that I reached out to who didn't immediately say, yes, okay. I want to talk about my stuff. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, a lot of these women have basically been ignored or mm-hmm. been forgotten. Uh, and her contributions are just as important or as significant as many of the people that we hold up as heroes. And so... I think it was wonderful. You know, Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity. um, You know, I think I went into a lot of these interviews thinking, okay, I'm going to get these important histories down on paper and that's going to be great for the world. But also, I mean, these are also just wonderful women that are in my life now. Like Mm -hmm. I have this Rolodex full of, you know, tech aunties Mm -hmm. who are my mentors and who help me get some perspective on things Mm -hmm. and who... Uh, show me how a different generation thinks and how a different generation has experienced things that I take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been incredibly instructive. I think, you know, in the U.S. at least, there's not a lot of intergenerational discourse. I think we're very kind of an ageist society and we don't um, often have the opportunity to spend valuable time and exchange valuable ideas with people who are significantly older than us. Mm-hmm. And I think that that in of itself, for me, like on a purely sort of like selfish level, has been like life-changingly great. And I hope that, you know, the sort of with me as a vessel like telling these stories to other people that you know people get the richness of of that kind of intergenerational conversation mm-hmm. so yeah it's been it's been wonderful and a lot of them are kind of still part of my life like I do book events and I try to if I'm in a city where one of these women lives mm-hmm. I try to bring them out right. with me and we can do it together and right. I can have they can tell their own stories basically without me having to be a mediator mm-hmm. all the time and can you highlight one <laughs> like a favorite no not necessarily favorite but like <laughs> the experience was so, I don't know, special? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. I have, like, certain affinities in terms of, like, the women in my book that I have, like, a continuing relationship to that Mm -hmm. I feel close to. And that tends to be, like, the people who are, like, like the the 90s generation of people, like Stacey Horn, who was a early kind of community builder, and Jamie Levy, who was a sort of hypertext graphic Mm -hmm. interactive media designer. Mm -hmm. You know, these people are sort of more like me in the sense that I'm an artist, I'm not a highly technical person, and we have a lot more in common. But I actually, I think what's really interesting to me is when you're writing a book that's ostensibly like a feminist book uh, and talking to women of different generations, that means having to kind of internalize a lot of different forms of what it means to be a feminist or Mm -hmm. if it's even important to be a feminist. Mm -hmm. A lot of the kind of older generation of women aren't really like, they have a different feminism than me. You know, they, they survived different kinds of environments. They had to sort of 
develop their outer shells mm-hmm. and and think about themselves and their relationship with their colleagues and with the the rest of the world and with the power structures that they are trying to work within. And some of them, like, you know, like, I didn't, obviously Grace Hopper is, is dead now, but she didn't consider herself to be a feminist. She thought that women's livers were like weak-willed, mm-hmm. you know, whiners because she just powered through and just did her shit even though she was the only woman you know in her workplace mm-hmm. um does that make her less of a feminist icon to someone like me no it's just mm-hmm. you have to kind of uh understand how far we've come and how our approach changes from generation to generation and people do what they can and they sort of operate the way that they can mm-hmm. uh in the best way that they can in the context that they live in and that's like the fascinating thing about history especially the kind of histories that i'm interested in which are the kind of the personal histories of individuals you know, living through important technological moments, mm-hmm. which is what I try to chronicle in the book, that there are many different ways of getting through complicated situations, and they're all valid, uh, mm-hmm. especially if you really think about them as, like, anchored in the context of, of a specific time. So, I don't know. I mean, I think that some of these women just remind me, really, like, how far we have come. Like, you know, we think that it's it's still bad in tech, but, you know, at least you're not being asked to make coffee for your boss all the time. Like, you know, that's what it was like in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, things have changed, mm-hmm. and talking to people about their experiences really helps you to understand that. I think it's interesting to see that uh, all the women that you spoke to bring something else and that they, they brought the perspective and that you, in, in your book, display how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you talk about the, the, the message board, BBS, mm-hmm. uh, in New York, which is still online. Yeah. There is this passion or this energy um, behind it that you uh, that they keep it alive and that everybody and that there are still this core group of uh, people using it. And I, I've, I, I found it very interesting that you or that people in general go for something and it's just because of the love of it, of the... yeah. I mean, that's the internet to me. Like, that's the legacy of what's good about the internet is, is people doing things that they're passionate about, building right. things that are weird and useless and make no money that are just exist because they can. And I think, you know, I say this a lot, but, you know, the stories that our culture tends to hold on to about sort of tech and, like, who's important in tech mm-hmm. always seem to revolve around, like, making money. Like, mm-hmm. our heroes, our big tech heroes are, like, you know, the Elon Musks and the Steve mm-hmm. Jobs and the Bill Gates of this world, who, of course, like, did big th- have all done great big things. But, um, you know, their primary sort of value, it seems, is, like, how wealthy they are and, and how much they have managed to sort of accumulate great amounts of capital, right. sometimes at the expense of, of users and of the environment and of societies in yeah. general. And I don't really understand, like, why these people are our only heroes are only models for what values are important. I think if we started to look at people like this woman, Stacey Horn, who you kind of mentioned, you know, who built this BBS in New York in the late 80s that like 5,000 people used and still exists and, you know, never got, never made her rich, never IPO'd, never did anything but take care of the community that Mm -hmm. she built. You know, if we start to value people like that as being heroes, Mm -hmm. like people who invest their lives in developing something to serve a small community of people that is their community and does not abandon that community in order to make a jump and Mm -hmm. build something more lucrative or whatever it is. Um, I think if we valued those kinds of people more, we would certainly like have a healthier relationship with technology. And for me, those are the heroes. Like those are the people that we should, we should have on, Mm -hmm. you know, or we should just be holding their pictures up and, and aloft and and talking about how amazing they are because that's, that's real thankless, amazing work. Like the sort of tedious workaday realities of actually making mm-hmm. a technology functional and mm-hmm. safe and equitable and yeah. fun for people, regardless of whether or not it gets anybody rich. And, you know, m- maybe that's just like me being like an old punk rocker or something, like me being a crusty DIY person who thinks that, thinks that. But I, I, there's plenty of things that I do that make me no money like five every day, you know? It's just something that I do every day for my community in Los Angeles and I do it with pride and I, it makes my life richer mm-hmm. and it makes my life infinitely more interesting mm-hmm. and it makes helps me make friends and it helps strengthen the bonds between people in the real world through the vector of something technological that doesn't exploit or suck data out mm-hmm. of people uh, but gives them opportunities. This to me is like the ultimate application yeah. of what technology is and can be good for mm-hmm. and we never talk about that stuff. You yeah. know? And, we don't, and we don't think about it as, as a success. In fact, you know, when my book came out, there was one review that was written by the Wall, I think the Wall Street Journal, um, not necessarily a negative review, but talking about, oh, well, this book is full of failures. You know, it's full of people whose companies, they, full of people whose names we haven't heard because they're, they failed. Yeah. And I just really take exception to that mm-hmm. because if we only, 
like correlate success with wealth, then we will never get out of the shit that we are in. You know, success is a much more open-ended thing. I think yeah, that it, it's also like I listen to a lot of um, American podcasts. <laughs> I don't know how you, how you say. I don't know how you. I love the idea of American podcast. Yeah, yeah, of I mean, course. I, I'm from Europe. So I know, like, I know. But um, and there is this one podcast. It's called uh, um, "How I Build This" with yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard NPR. of PR. I've heard of. But this, this guy is only like, if you you have to make billions and billions, and otherwise you are not on the podcast. And it's like, okay, in the beginning I didn't notice it but now it's like mm. who cares behind every billionaire is a crime i think there's yeah. some great crime i mean you look at like the wealthiest families in the u.s like the sackler family mm. you know who like fund a lot of art in america are wealthy yet because their hands are bloody with the deaths of opium opioid addicts um there's always something really sinister right. behind the really truly yeah. wealthy um i mean not to be a total anarchist but no, but it's, it's, that's okay. <laughs> One uh, has to be cynical of those right. people, I think. Um, um, but as you mentioned, um, you do with a lot of uh, lo- labor of love, <laughs> the Everyday Five app, um, which is um, five recommendations every day in LA. Yes. And um, I find it really, really fascinating because it has a lot of like similarities with what I try to do with Neymar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious, why did you start now? Let's start with Los Angeles, because um, why is Los Angeles such a good city for this? <laughs> I mean, I think Los Angeles is right now is one of the most interesting cities in the world. Mm. Um, it's, you know, beyond the technological question. It's just a fascinating city. It's a completely improbable city. It mm. should not be there mm. where it is. It is an ecosystem of fire and flood. Uh, it is not meant to sustain as mm. many people as are here, and yet somehow it continues to survive and thrive. And, um, you know, it is a city that is rich with immigrants. It is mm-hmm. rich with a high, high diversity of people. Of course, like every city in America, it's plagued by, you know, income inequality and gentrification. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of problems, of mm-hmm. course. But it's also a city where there's lots of a great deal of mixing culturally and um, also a great deal of sort of entrepreneurial, creative, productive individuals working at different levels for different creative industries. Yeah. It's a very interesting and exciting city to be in. Yeah. Uh, but it's also really overwhelming and it has this kind of opacity to it um it's not like a european city where you can just walk around and look at windows and and figure out what things are it's this like weird massive amorphous Mm -hmm. uh ever-changing city that is primarily navigated by the vector of the car which allows Mm -hmm. almost nobody the kind of boots on the ground you know hands-on discovery that you often get in the city that's a little bit Mm -hmm. more easy to navigate so i think you know la offers a lot of opportunities but it's also very difficult to find things if you are coming from the outside Mm -hmm. so Five Every Day is like this incredibly simple app interface that just, yeah, it recommends five things to do in Los Angeles every day. And that's not not just like these are the cool concerts or whatever. It's also things like interesting little like mom and pop ethnic grocery stores or, you know, interesting little tidbits of architectural mm-hmm. history or cultural history. Mm-hmm. It's um, public spaces that are invisible from view. It's parks and hikes and museums, little pocket museums that you would never know about. Um, it's, you know, interesting artist projects and galleries and shops. It's really, for me, like the, the breadth of what makes Los Angeles mm-hmm. interesting, this rich interplay between, you know, a really young creative energy and a sort of established, um, fascinating, weird mm-hmm. uh, kind of opaque history and a rich sort of uh, immigrant culture. And so, yeah, the app points people to five different right. instances of things that are interesting in L.A. every day. And I write up like a little paragraph about that thing explaining why I think it's interesting and what the context is for me and what uh, value it serves to the community mm-hmm. and what relationship it has to mm-hmm. other things, which I think is really useful for both Angelinos who live in LA and, and know it well and for people who are new or who are visiting who mm-hmm. don't understand the interrelationship right. between things. Especially, you know, I think in American cities we see a lot of you know, cultural institutions and um, civic institutions kind of coming and going and disappearing, like iconic old galleries or restaurants or music venues going out of business or mm-hmm. changing names. And to sort of map, for me, Five Every Day kind of ephemerally every day maps the relationships between all of these things right. and gives people a sense of what the city is and what the mm-hmm. culture of the city is. And for me, that's like, a, it's infinitely valuable mm-hmm. to me. You know, I think that's like, that's like for me a, a gift that I give to my city mm-hmm. is sort of an interpretation of, of, what and who its major cultural mm-hmm. players are and, and how they know each other and mm-hmm. what counts. You know, I can't obviously get everything. It's a big city and I'm often, you know, overwhelmed by it. But I think sometimes less is more. Mm-hmm. And when we're overwhelmed, you know, we live in a world where we're constantly overwhelmed with 
huge amounts of information and it makes us want to shut down and it yeah. makes us like feel like we can't possibly know anything. And I think it's really valuable to give people something that is so streamlined and so simplistic and so, you know, deliberate mm -hmm. that it sort of, uh, I don't know, it's like a relief from mm -hmm. the chaos of the feed and the chaos of the city. Yeah. And it gives us a, it gives us a way in. Right. right? That's important. What I also really like about it is that it, it's a, like a mobile thing or mm -hmm. a, a, a internet based thing. But you go to physical stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's not about like staring at the thing for yeah. as long as possible. I don't get, I don't get any, I don't get nothing out of someone looking at it and yeah. staying and, and scrolling forever. Like like you can't you, scroll forever. Right. You read everything and then you you're done. You go left, right, and then you go left, right, and then you're done. Yeah. And if yeah, it's like for me, like yeah, the the most exciting thing about technology is technology, which allows us to be connected to each other right. in new ways and which allows us to experience new things in the world. So, you know, we always say like millennials love experiences, mm -hmm. but you know, it, like as sort of cynical as that kind of thinking is it is really meaningful to use technology to find out about stuff to actually do in your yeah. life that gets you off the phone you know the phone is just like one stop mm -hmm. along a journey that takes you to something that mm -hmm. liberates you from the phone that's yeah. like my goal yeah exactly and, and can you tell something that you really learned from it well it forces me to stay like very actively engaged in cultural goings-on in my city you know mm -hmm. like I know everything about every art opening mm -hmm. I mean not everything but I know more than most mm -hmm. people about like which restaurants are opening mm -hmm. and what's closing and what's mm -hmm. happening uh which is fun for me because I like being kind of like I, I like knowing you right. know I love inf I love information and I love context so it's very rewarding but it's also for me like I don't know there's something really nice about like an invisible community there's no like feedback mechanism mm -hmm. in the app there's no like button there's mm -hmm. no like way for me to know or track like how much people are using it actually i mean mm. i know how many people are reading it but i don't know how many people are reading it and then going places right. the only feedback i get is from is anecdotally from people telling me you know oh my art opening well, like a lot of people came to my art opening because it was on the thing or people telling me oh i met my boyfriend at like something that i went to because of five every day yeah. or, or using this app makes me have you know people tell me stories about their experiences and that's like the only kind of metric i right. have is like anecdotal experiential uh, human person-to-person -person interact in, interactions and for me that's like the best yeah. the best kind of metric and I love and I love not knowing anything more than that mm -hmm. that's all I need to know mm -hmm. is this sort of I need to be able to perceive the invisible effects of this thing without having to like obsessively track it you right. know the metrics of it every day so that for me is like a really rewarding thing and I think it's helped me to understand the effects of everything we do in this world. You know, when we make a podcast or mm. you write a book or you mm. make a record, like you don't always know exactly where it's going to hit and who it's hitting, mm. but you have to trust that it's going to make the impact that it's going to make on the right people eventually. Yeah. You just have to give it space to do so and you have to stop like trying to constantly own and possess and track and quantify it all. Yeah. You just let art do its thing. Right. Hmm. That's interesting because I'm sometimes like really obsessed by checking analytics or no whatever. fuck analytics. You know, I mean, this is what I always say. Like, you you could put a you could put a video on YouTube that has like 500 views or something, mm -hmm. but versus a video that has two million views. Mm -hmm. But which one is more important? Yeah, you don't know. Right. Like, you don't know what each view means. Yeah. Like, is one of those views just some idiot who's like flipping through the algorithmic? chain not paying attention or is one of those views someone who was like sitting next to it tears in their eyes moved 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 and, and motivated and inspired you know it's like punk rock like all my favorite bands probably never played for more than two or three hundred people at a time mm -hmm. you don't have to necessarily have a huge audience to make an impact right that's great it's a lesson right i mean maybe it's just the the ramblings of a person who doesn't have a huge audience but i think there is significance to each individual like you say that you not necessarily has a big audience i've seen you like for two years now <laughs> popping up everywhere so your impact is thanks quite... i mean you know i of course i have to work i mean i'm coming from a position of privilege it sounds like i'm just like you know do whatever you want don't worry yeah. about getting paid of course we have to all have to survive and i do what i do you know i go on my gives i do a lot of work i work mm -hmm in 700 different ways all the time and I'm exhausted because mm -hmm. I never take vacations. Right. Uh, there are certain sacrifices one makes in order to make these kinds of um, sweeping proclamations, but I still believe in um, the value of what I do and mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I try to get paid for the things that I think I deserve to be paid for. But right. then there are things I do for love and mm -hmm. those you, you, you couldn't give me money for. Mm -hmm. That's great. <laughs> no, but it's, that's so, it's so true, but you really have to... Yeah, that's just true. Can't say anything about that. Anyway, so to round up, earlier you said that there is a 
there are very interesting corners of the internet. Mm -hmm. What is now your most interested corner of the internet? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple of things I really like. I like uh, Arena a lot. Do you know Arena? Yeah, yes, I've seen it, but I'm not like signed up or. Oh, get in there. Okay. It's one of those things like it's kind of like if you come to it as an outsider and you don't know what it is, it's like really confusing and opaque. Yeah. But you just have to dig around a little bit. To me, it's like Arena is like a microcosm of the what the web used to be. And mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's built by people who were part of that kind of like, you know, web surfing clubs of the early aughts, you know, mm -hmm. people that um, were really active on sites like Delicious, you know, who were right. really in, sort of internet spelunkers. And that's kind of the community that still exists around it. It's like artist researchers and, you know, interesting mm -hmm. weirdo thinkers who are trying to connect ideas together and build these kind of webs of meaning, uh, which are interconnected with other people's webs of meaning. It's mm -hmm. like the dream of hypertext, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it fascinating. I'm not as active as maybe some other users, but I am a constant uh, lurker and surfer. And I keep, I maintain a few channels and I use it for research. And I think it's a really good example of, you know, people building their own platforms that allow them to use the web more mindfully mm -hmm. and um, which privilege, you know, the nature and the meaning of connections between things rather than just the metrics. Um, to me, that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's like essentially user owned. I mean, there's like user investors. I'm, I invested a hundred dollars in it. Okay. So I technically own part of arena. I love that. So I think yeah. that's really interesting. Um, uh, they did a Kickstarter, right? Or they, something. They did at least they did a big crowds. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean they have like yeah. Patreon and stuff, right. but you know I think they're they're working to become what's like a called a B corporation, which is like a corporation for the public good, and you know who knows what the long term model right. is, but it is like t right now like culturally is like a microcosm of really interesting thought, and to me um, gives me hope about the future. Mm. Um, I'm also interested in like I don't fully understand the protocols at play, but I'm really interested in the community that's arising around like decentralized and peer to peer web technologies. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like it's an entire generation of people who are trying to kind of return us to the original ideals of the World Wide Web. And even though I don't quite get how it works, um, and I feel comfortable saying that, uh, I think that it's a beautiful effort. And mm -hmm. there's lots of projects emerging and there's lots of women in that world, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. Like one of the main new like peer-to-peer -peer web browsers mm -hmm. is co-designed by a woman yeah. um and that makes me really happy yeah uh that i don't know and then like that you know i'm like anybody else like i'm lurking on instagram like finding weird teenagers like doing stuff i don't understand and that always fascinates me to no end you know teenagers like making slime on instagram and selling it to each other like i just don't know what the hell is going on and i love not knowing what is mm -hmm. going on and i love trying to imagine what's next and and how like generation y is going to sort of build something of meaning or value mm. out of the ruins of like our techno-capitalist mm. nightmare. You know, I hope that they can figure it out. And I think that they are. And I think it's not my place to fully get it. Right. No, but it's also because there is this difference between you and, and the people on the internet. <laughs> I dedicated my book to the users because I feel like there's no more powerful force mm. for ingenuity and creativity and mm. surprise than like what users do with things. And even when we are dealing with like these highly opaque and like super, um, you know, structured and kind of like non-permissive mm -hmm. social media platforms like mm -hmm. Instagram or Facebook, there are still people just doing the weirdest stuff all the time. Like yeah. I just found this, I didn't know about this, but this is like an entire subculture in Korea of people like just eating like noisy food mm -hmm. video, you know, I don't forget what it's called, but it's like people just eating the weirdest, noisiest food mm -hmm. uh, silently and facing the camera. And like, that's the thing that people are obsessed with and watch endlessly. I think there's an entire generation of people who are like becoming like really like almost fetishistic about the tactile and like sensuous experiences yeah. of others. Like it's sort of an ASMR related thing, mm -hmm. but like slime videos and like weird eating videos, like we're so starved for contact and for like physical sensation yeah. that we like are getting it through other people. And that's like, you, nobody could have invented that. Mm -hmm. Nobody could have guessed that. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably kind of dystopian, yeah. but it's also so interesting. Yeah, but, it's, but now it's public for the whole world to view. Yeah. And before it was only like local in your own, in your own community that it was yes. only like people were doing it like in the corner and then you hear about it. And then <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, the lo the local is gone, but yeah. But now you have like local corners. Uh, but yeah, maybe instead of like sort of regional or geographic specificity, it becomes about like the specificity of interest. You know, mm. if you're like just into like some really weird mm. thing, like watching you know Korean supermodels eat noodles on mm. video, 
like that in of itself is a kind of local is a kind of locality because of right. its specificity. I mean, even though it's really popular, like it's a community that's arisen out of a need for a shared mm -hmm. experience, and that shared experience can be international in scale yeah. uh, and can exist on a massively scaled social media platform. But is whatever we could talk about this forever. <laughs> I'm not gonna go deep into it. Um, so at the end, um, I always ask for um, five, five recommendations mm. in a single category. Okay. Um, do you say it right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's called the section is called Neon Five. Okay. And uh, what would be your recommendation for a book? Mm. Okay. Um, I'm. S I really like this book that I'm reading right now. That I have been reading probably for like a year and a half. It's a very dense, mm. academic book, but I really love it. It's called The Mushroom at the End of the World. Mm. Mushroom at the End of the World. Yeah, by Anna Lone Hopsing. It's a book about. Um, this very specific kind of mushroom, which only grows in like human altered forest environment. So it's kind of this like fungus, which is representative of the Anthropocene. And it's a book of social anthropology around the communities of people that are sort of harvesting and making a living off this mushroom. And then the sort of like international trade of this mushroom, which is actually like also a delicacy in Japan. It's like this oh, yeah. really weird book about, you know, globalization and the end of the world and fungus, which are like wow. three things that I find very interesting. Wow. <laughs> and food food um oh uh yes i've become really interested recently in edible weeds because edible uh, weeds edible weeds yeah mm -hmm. like los angeles is full of them it's you know plants that we think of culturally as being mm -hmm. weeds but which are actually like really nutritious mm -hmm. and, and edible and mm -hmm. um it's just like one of those um i don't know it's like getting like a veil lifted to realize that there are categories of plants which we have marginalized as being like bad garbage mm -hmm. that we like poison and cut away mm -hmm. when it's actually like a rich source of food and we have such food scarcity mm -hmm. you know like we should be eating everything we can eat mm -hmm. so i've been like i don't know i have so many weeds growing in my garden because it's been raining non-stop in los right, angeles yeah, yeah. Like, I, I just interviewed um gali nikitas she's the chair of uh, otis uh, oh cool uh, master of graphic design and when we started the interview, she was in her car and it was raining really, really hard. Yeah, it's been flooding in California because of the rains. Yeah. But it also means that there's this insane amounts of like fungus and weeds yeah. everywhere. And I've just been like, I haven't been weeding my garden. I've just been learning about all the weeds right. and then eating them. So like, you know, there's like these plants which were like brought to the new world by colonists mm -hmm. as like gardening plants, like dandelions, for example, um, which are now considered to be weeds, but they're actually like incredibly nutritious, mm -hmm. like the most nutritious plants actually because they're wild and they... Um, you know, whatever. Anyway, so we edible weeds. I highly recommend, especially um, a weed called hedge mustard. It tastes like wasabi and it grows everywhere in LA. All of LA is a free salad, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but like, for example, in Holland, you have a city called Almere. It's like 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And what they did, like when they built the city, they only um, plant trees that give fruit or oh, nuts smart. or stuff like that. Because when something happened, at least there was food from the trees. Yeah. I mean, that should just be like a yeah. basic, basic yeah, exactly. for everybody. Ooh, um, music. Hmm. God, I never listen to music. Isn't that ridiculous? I'm a musician. You'd no. think I would. Um, here, let me look at my phone. Can I? Yeah, sure. Let my most recent plays. I like weirdly operate in a world of non, a somewhat non-musical world when I on the day to day. Oh yeah, okay. There's a, a really great. Ryuichu Sakamoto song that just came out called Energy Flow um, that was reworked by this Japanese tabla player named Uzon. It's like this crazy, beautiful, minimalist tabla composition that mm -hmm. I, it's like the only thing I've listened to right now. I've been listening to it over and over again. Um, yeah, let's say that. Cool. Uh, movie. Movie. Um, Mm, I don't know. I'm in this really weird media ecosystem right now where I'm only watching Star Trek. So I've watched like every single Star Trek episode and now I'm going through all the movies. So none of them are really particularly that good. Mm -hmm. I like the Next Generation movies. Mm -hmm. um, I actually weirdly like Nemesis, which is not a good one, but um, I'm going to say Star Trek Nemesis. Okay. <laughs> I've never watched Star Trek, but... Really? It's to me like the only um, sort of moral... Uh, like structure that mm. makes any sense to me you know yeah. I've never been religious and I've never been a strong adherent of like you know the state or mm. you know like I've never really felt like I can participate in a kind of ideological superstructure other than 
like the values of the International Federation of Planets. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I have to I have to watch that and then. Yeah, I mean, in the Star Trek universe, everybody is vegetarian. Right. It's highly multicultural, yeah. egalitarian, and there are strong principles of like not disturbing indigenous yeah. cultures and instead letting people's histories proceed organically without like imperialist intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very moral. It's like very. I mean, it's probably also like it's non-realistic and it has its flaws as well. But it's a highly moral and uh, highly equitable universe, mm-hmm. and I just can't. I just can't wait till we get there. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, I definitely have to <laughs> um, Last one is uh, miscellaneous, something from your life you would recommend. Mm, miscellaneous category. Um, meditation? Sure. What's boring, I know. No. But it depends on what kind of... <laughs> I mean, it's going to sound corny, but I've been doing transcendental meditation for the last couple of years. And, you know, it's it's like, it seems kind of like a cult or something, but it's... It is because Rihanna does it. I do. <laughs> but it's a really. You um, also do the, like the whole traditional introduction of the like. Uh, with the mantra and yeah. stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mantra. I can't tell you my mantra. No, no. I have to kill you first. Yeah. Um, no, but it's to me. I just see it as like a piece of software that I, you know, installed into my brain, mm-hmm. and now I can use whenever I need right. to. And it's genuinely mm-hmm. like changed my life, especially like when I'm stressed out and traveling. Right. But did you also like in the beginning? It was. It, it is really intense. Mm. And yeah. Then like. Because I we also I did it, I, I think I learned that two years ago or three years ago, but now it's like I don't have time for it. Yeah, I, I mean you're supposed to do something. it twice a day, right. but yeah. I don't. I don't. I yeah. I use it like a piece. I use it like a piece of software. I load it when I need it, which I know you're supposed to. Like it's better if you do it. And sometimes when I'm really on top of my shit, mm-hmm. I try to do it at least once a day. Mm-hmm. But it could be. I mean, I think I probably could have just could just close my eyes for 20 minutes right. every day without a mantra and it would be mm. as beneficial. Yeah. I think it's just um, the power of presence and reminding yourself that you're in a human, you're mm-hmm. in a human form and that yeah. your human form needs to um, be centered and, and chill mm-hmm. out every once in a while is a really powerful thing. And where can people follow you? Uh, okay, I, I'm on Twitter, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I wish I wasn't anymore, but uh, I'm on Twitter as The Universe. Mm-hmm. So I'm an early amazing. adopter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm like, I'm on Instagram. Do you get like emails every day? Every like, day. Every day I get. Um, I to buy a, a no, to buy I never get emails about wanting to buy my okay. handle, but I get people like tweeting at me constantly, okay. thinking that they're just kind of like rhetorically tweeting at the universe, like, oh, at the universe, oh. why are you so shitty to me? You know, or like, <laughs> at the universe, why can't I get a boyfriend? It's a lot of that. Like, okay. really, most of my replies mm-hmm. are that, which I actually find really nice because it gives me a taste of right. uh, kind of the zeitgeist of what people are need, need and want mm-hmm. and what they're requesting of yeah, the yeah, universe. Yeah. Um, I can't help them, but right, I yeah. like to know what's going on. And yeah, I don't know. I'm on Instagram, Claire L. Evans, uh, website, ClaireLEvans.com. Mm-hmm. You can find me wherever. Yeah. And um, are you having speaking gigs coming up? or? I Nothing that I can announce just yet. I have okay. some stuff coming up for the rest of the year, but... Um, Right now, right now, no. Okay, okay. Thank you so much. Oh, and you get a podcast. Can you announce that already or not? It comes out in May. When is this going to come out? I don't know. It depends on (laughs) how fast I am uh, in editing. Well, I have a podcast coming out in May um, called You Podcasts about technology and identity. Um, Yeah, keep keep your eyes peeled. Okay, thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, thank you for having me. What a treat. Hi, it's Thomas. New episodes come out on Mondays. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, neomare.com or wherever you listen to the show. Let me know what you think of the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by dropping a note on Twitter. I'm at Thomas Daam, at neomare, and on Instagram, at Show. If you are listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast and you find some episode notes. Next to that, Neomare has a weekly newsletter called Neo Monday with the latest conference news and updates on our digitalized world. You can sign up for Neo Monday at neomare.com slash subscribe. And now we also have a Patreon page and you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash Thomas Thanks for listening.